everybody, welcome to another episode of Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark, I'm here with Trevor. How are you today, Trevor? I'm alright, I feel like an amateur exterminator. How are you feeling? You've been dealing with a infestation or something? A minor one, a minor one. Yeah. The, the moisture in LA weather has brought out some earwigs to our house. Oh, I hate those things. So they're kind of everywhere. Um, it's tolerable during the day, but if you go outside at night and look at the side of the house, it's like a freak show. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no good. Nice. Uh, what are your feelings? Good luck with that. I feel like, you know, my eyes are only registering what's on screens. <laughs> yep. Definitely. <laughs> I went for a walk today. I felt like just an alien. Mm. Alien planet. Absolutely. We're but good. yeah. We're taking quarantine a turn for the worst. Yeah. So yeah. I got the quarantine beards pretty pretty full right now. Nice. I don't think Probably I've ever seen you with a full beard. It. No one has. I mean, this is the first time I've really, really mm. grown it out. It's it's I can grow a good beard. Uh that there that there's confidence in that, I think, as as yeah. a guy. I mine is like I haven't attempted to grow a beard, but like I had, you know, endless years of like it was no option. Like I'm yeah. like <laughs> underdeveloped. But I think at this point, now that I finally hit my thirties, if I really wanted to go for it, I think it would come in. I mean, now's the time. But now's uh, the you know, my theory now, my theory now that uh, I've got this thing on my face is that I think biologically, beards are meant to discourage men from being expressive with their face. <laughs> like really? i can feel it like restricting mm. yeah my like facial movements you know like you're gonna smile less just like overall. yeah i don't maybe <laughs> maybe yeah i just like feel like it's maybe i just have really thick hairs or whatever but mm -hmm. it's like uh it's not a passive thing i like feel it all the time <laughs> Weird. yeah i don't care i can't really get used to it even every time i attempt it's just like the overwhelming urge to shave my face and like yeah. it feels so good i mean i'm probably torturing you right now but it feels so <laughs> good when you shave your face no i could never get over like the itchy uh threshold but that went away after like week two and a half or whatever i'm on like i'm on over a month now or like month and probably nice. five weeks nice but yeah so we'll keep you updated on that but uh so for the beginning of the episode this week i was just thinking i wanted to talk about legacy for a minute here okay because uh i was you know had a random thought the other day when i was like okay let's let's project out a uh, 50 years 100 years from now mm -hmm. do you think there would be any elvis fans do you think elvis is a thing that will be the fandom will still exist in 50 to 100 years it's an interesting question because you look back at the history of music you know and um you know going back hundreds of years even just a handful of hundreds it's like who do you like there's really there's like two or three musicians that will represent not only a country but like basically an entire era you know it's like a whole century like yeah. beethoven you know like whatever and it's sort of like it is interesting to think like so far into the future you know in my head i guess the war of like this time period would be like Beatles versus Elvis like or like you really have to project out and think about what is like the most insanely popular thing you can't really yeah. like you can't really have an ego about anything and be like oh well you know Drake has sold more records or you know like whatever it's like what will last is you can't even tell yeah um, yeah but yeah I but mean okay. I have high hopes for Elvis he's pretty Elvis universal. you think he'll stick around 
Okay, universal now, but we'll see. Or like, you know, my other thought was like, okay, you got this whole market, like the the antique market is like still alive. Mm -hmm. You know, is that going to exist anymore? Is there going to be a peak where like these trinkets and stuff like are no longer have any value to anyone or baseball cards and shit like that, Mm. you know? Yeah, because the economy of sort of like digital things is kind of what's most important. But... I don't know. I don't know. I think that there still is like massive value in things, but it's all utilitarian things. People are very interested in like ordering the essentials from Amazon, you know? But yeah, yeah. But let's say like our our generation and beyond. Let's cut it off there. Mm-hmm. Is there any interest in like an antique cabinet or something? You know, it's it, like something that's that, you know, is valued at. $50,000, like, is that people are actually going to care about it? I think that, yes. I think Shit that, like that. I think, yeah, because it's deceptive what people, there's always people out there where you're like, you know, there's some millennial out there who's like, yeah, I'm really into like late 19th century furniture. And you don't really understand <laughs> like their, their path to getting there. Um, but I think that's what drives those type of markets. I think that they'll get smaller. I think that they'll yeah. get more niche. That'll um, bring the price down though, you know, supply and demand. It's Or will it bring it if up? If people don't care because about Because there's oh, okay. like people like the rarest items are only preserved. I think furniture is like the wrong thing to ask about. Like it, it goes, yeah, probably. it goes between generations. Like I, I personally know someone who's a collector of eighties and nineties toys yeah and it's like those are huge like people just they they grew up in the 80s and now people who grew up in the 80s have disposable income to go on ebay and spend 500 dollars on a he-man figurine yeah (laughs) i lost you for a second there but i know what you're saying yeah Uh, yeah you know what's you know what's crazy too is uh i think we'll even we'll probably just get crazier and crazier is uh the sneaker heads like the sneaker market is is ridiculous absolutely yep yeah yeah that's that stuff so you know, I was trying to think about that and what was going to stand the test of time and kind of carry that over to the world of literature. And then that in that it's not really about money anymore. It's just about interest. Mm-hmm. Like uh, from, you know, from the 20th century, who do you think has cemented their status? You know, I feel like, uh, you know, it's hard because I only really have the American perspective, but I feel right. like, you know, you think early, early 19th, mid 19th or sorry, early 20th, mid 20th century, it's like. Hemingway, Faulkner, Wolf, Heller, Plath, Harper Lee, Fitzgerald. Like, mm-hmm. that's who I think will, you know, that's who I think will, will those are the people I think will. Well, it's funny cement, that you said because had cemented their status. You said, you know, the early, t- you're like, you have that American bias, which is definitely true. Because when I think early 20th, which is like turn of the century, 1900s, I'm like zeroing in on all the people I've been obsessed with recently, which is like, uh, Zola and Proust and stuff because that's all like the French guys from the early 20th century that were that were heavyweights but do you think that they they are gonna continue maybe not way? maybe not I mean a lot of people are find some of their stuff like sort of inaccessible not as accessible as like a Hemingway a lot of people are very like yeah. find Hemingway very very accessible um, okay. you know then I going wanted to in, play one I want to do one quick thing before we speculate some more, okay. just to set the mood. All right. <laughs> it's 
<laughs> Sales of Izod shirts will decline dramatically when it's revealed that the alligator has a small child in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it will be revealed that carrots do not actually improve your eyesight, but they are still number one when it comes to scratching a deep rectal itch. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jim, that was Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey oh, nice. on Conan two thousand three. The classic yeah. in the year two thousand sketch for anyone who is <laughs> for anyone who's unfamiliar with in the year two thousand. Just YouTube that and you'll have endless fun. Some old old Conan. But um, time, yeah. so yeah, let's let's think about it because now let's think about late late twentieth century and twenty first century. Now, who is going to stand the test of time? Yeah, like my I mean, number one go to to think about was okay Stephen King, mm -hmm. just because of how many you know just being up there right. as far as books sold. He's got the most like. Uh, Exposure. Movie adaptations and, and stuff movies, like that. Yeah. Well, there's like also that, yeah. there's the Harry Potter thing. It's like J.K. Rowling, even though maybe known as a one-trick pony, is like sort of you know she wrote one thing very well, and it's and it's you know it could continue forward. Like, yeah, I always tell people all the time, like we have one set of Harry Potter movies now. When we're in our, I would not bat an eye if when we were older age, like in our 60s or something, that they were like, we're just going to reshoot all seven Harry Potter movies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll happen. Yeah. That'll happen probably sooner than you think. <laughs> yeah, right. They're casting for Harry Potter. Is the new Harry Potter born today? We we can only, we can only hope. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, I think Zadie Smith in terms of like just being known as like a top dog author for a while um basically like her whole adult life um all I the people thinking, that we uh, really love like it's just seems like they wouldn't stand the test of like hundreds of years like pension or something like that like i know we'll see yeah yeah um yeah that's what i was thinking like i i, I wrote down jk rowling because i'm like yeah that's absolutely gonna say you know it's it's a more than a book it's a franchise or whatever so mm -hmm. what about uh do you think one series is enough for other authors though you know one hit wonder i guess like let's say i don't know i don't know if um uh, i'm just more assuming that this is a one hit wonder as far as a series but how about Suzanne Collins, like, you know, the uh, Hunger Games series. Is that enough mm. to cement, like, a long legacy? Or is that yeah, just something no. that's going to... I mean, definitely falls by the way... When you compare it to... When you're trying to project, like, 100 years in the future, Harry Potter versus Hunger Games, yeah, I don't think... I don't think it stands the test of time. Okay. What about our favorite uh, uh, airport novelist? Like James Patterson or <laughs> James Patterson or what's or it, Baldacci? Baldacci, yeah. Baldacci. No, those guys don't last. They don't like that's like that you could easily like look up some weird like, you know, nineteenth century, you know, novelist where it's just like, oh, he wrote like two hundred novels. That was like that's always been a thing. As law and actually this kind of like goes along with how you know I've been reading Lost Illusions by Balzac. It won't be a surprise. It's not a spoiler that, I, that that's my book this week, but <laughs> it's 
there's oh as long as there's been publishing there's been people where it's just like yeah i rattle off like 200 books a year and like get yeah. paid by the word or you know whatever you know i'm on contract um but they don't unless something like ridiculously extraordinary happens then they don't stay on test of time sorry okay. about dachi <laughs> So yeah, I felt bad doing this because I was like, you know what? I just haven't read enough new stuff. I'm yeah. stuck in I'm 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 Fox. I'm stuck in the 20th century. Like I <laughs> um, the for, for the stuff that I've covered on this though, I think like The Last Samurai was really good and I have mm-hmm. seen that like Helen DeWitt. I've seen that on a lot of lists of like best 21st century mm-hmm. novels and everything. I could see that it being something that lasts and you know has one of those Barnes and Noble, like, yeah, what is it? The, the special classics. edition classics, classics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I was thinking about stuff you covered, like maybe uh, Ishiguro. That was some modern, more modern, like, yeah, never let me go. It's two thousand five. Yeah, Ishiguro could possibly, or maybe Murakami. I mean, he is like a worldwide renowned. You know, like when that guy drops books, it's all over the place. But I think one of these, th- it's like it's like a fun thing to speculate. But also, like, there you can never live outside of your own history, you know? Yeah. Like, no one could predict, you know, There, I think there are even some famous novelists now who, like, you know, one of our favorite novels, Confederacy of Dunces, is just a posthumous publish, you know? Yeah. And that that is often considered, you know, a great novel that... You know, the author wasn't even alive to see his success. It's sort of like the Van Gogh thing, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, is there someone writing now that's just going to be posthumously published and they're going to overtake everyone who we've even talked about? Or is literature dead? A lot of people say that. A lot of people say, you know, the peak of the novel was in, you know, the 19th century or whatever. And just get over yeah, it. Yeah, get get on TikTok now, right? Yeah, get on TikTok. Stop reading. That's the new show. <laughs> well i have a question about murakami i think you know i feel like to in in this modern era to 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 create a lasting kind of thing you need to cover more mediums than just book like like books like you know we we're talking about harry potter as a series there's all these movies stephen king there's movies and a bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff like is, is there a murakami I know there are there are some Murakami like adaptations, but is there a big one yet? No, or is I don't there... think so. Unless it's Will something, unless it's something that has already happened, you know, in Japan or in Asia or something. Um, which I'm, you know, we're just so ignorant of how deep those markets go that it's <laughs> I can't say with certainty if it's been adapted even I wouldn't even well, trust like Wikipedia if I tried to look there, it up well I know that there was one last year I think it was called burning uh, mm. and that was based on one of his stories that that got some traction but I'm talking like I'm waiting for a, the Murakami blockbuster no I don't or think there Oscar is one. Oscar winner <laughs> I don't think there is one no damn no, they just need better CGI cat technology. <laughs> yeah, they 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 haven't broken that barrier at talking cat. Yeah. well, they had Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She had a talking cat. I mean, it wasn't. They need better mouth action. <laughs> the um, they need the uh, uh, Jim Henson's Creature Studios and yes, on that. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I had one more that I wrote down. Um, 
from my understanding, I feel like uh, Margaret Atwood is definitely yeah. primed for a lasting kind of legacy as far as being hugely popular, but also still like heady stuff with, you know, mm-hmm. interesting like messages in it. Yeah. And, everything, and you got so. the major blockbuster. You got Handmaid's yeah. Tale. Everyone's watching Handmaid's Tale. So, yeah, yeah, it's that's definitely possible. Um, but I wonder what the equivalent would be, you know, because like if we look back in history... I'm sure I'm sure that like someone like Balzac or like, you know, Dostoevsky, I'm sure that there's been like plays and movies and stuff like that. But that's not really what we remember. Remember the original, the original medium, you know, the same thing that we're talking about, like a franchise type of thing. It's like, you know, there's been hundreds and dozens of adaptations of Dostoevsky's stories. But the original medium is what he's, you know, and I hope, you know, that there, there's another name to talk about. I hope he stands the test of time throughout all of eternity. Uh, he seems to be referenced by almost all great artists. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, hold on to that thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. We haven't talked about Dostoevsky yet, but apparently I'm, I'm getting, I'm zeroing in. Damn, man. We got this kind of, we do. There's a way we call it that, bre- that wavelength thing. Yeah. yeah. I think you, you kind of, well, we come from the same place, come from the same hometown. Hand, yeah. So let me, uh, let me just jump right into, to my book report here then. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, anyone, uh, anyone listening, hit us up with your tw- best 21st century stuff. I need to read some newer things. Yeah, for sure. Things that you want to tell us. Years, yeah, you know? things that you want to tell us, like this will stand the test of time. Like it's so yeah. good. Yeah. All right. All right. Here's my uh, book report. So I got a question. What do you, what do you think of when I say the term Russian roulette? I think of just the literal definition, you know, loading loading up a gun with five out of six bullets, right? Or is it one? No, it's you one. Will, oh, <laughs> I'm, t- will, I'm playing a really five. I'm playing a really risky <laughs> version of Russian roulette. I owe people yeah. a lot of money. No, yeah, you just one, just one bullet in a six just chamber one. revolver. Yeah, that's better. Yeah. Uh, well, I did a little research on the phrase. And hmm. according to Wikipedia, the first known emergence of the concept itself, not the phrase, mind you, the concept mm-hmm. of just, you know, loading a gun and, you know, putting it to your head or whatever and taking the chance is from 1840. Hmm. And it's from a story called The Fatalist by Russian poet and author Mikhail Lermontov. Lermontov. Uh, so in this story, The Fatalist, it's not the classic what you described, you know, putting one bullet and spinning the revolver chamber so you have like a one in six chance mm-hmm. it was a character who grabbed a random pistol and that they couldn't have known was loaded or not okay so it was more of a 50 50 chance right there mm-hmm. anyways so that story that was like the first known you know mm-hmm occurrence of that of that concept of just gambling with one's life with a maybe loaded gun uh-huh. with one in the chamber or whatever also and interesting uh, inter- that it originates from russia as well like it yeah, wasn't yeah. even the original idea of what we think of it now but it did come from russia yeah yeah so well what happened was um that concept caught on from that in russia like gambling with one's own life and like uh 
Lermontov actually died from a gunshot the, a year after writing the story, but it was from a duel. It wasn't from roulette. Right. But, dueling culture <laughs> is so weird. My book report yeah. this week also has dueling in it, but Some continue. Duels. So, uh, and then, so that was the first occurrence of the concept, 1840. But then the actual term Russian roulette is thought to come from a 1937 short story, which was published in uh, Collier's magazine, the U.S. magazine, by George Serdes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to read the excerpt from it right now. Did you ever hear of Russian roulette? When I, when I said I had not, he told me all about it. When he was with the Russian army in Romania around 1917 and things were cracking up so that the officers felt that they were not only losing prestige, money, family, and country, but were being also dishonored before their colleagues of the Allied armies, some officer would suddenly pull out his revolver anywhere, at the table, in a cafe, at a gathering of friends, remove a cartridge from the cylinder, spin the cylinder, snap it back in place, put it to his head, and pull the trigger. There were five chances to one that the hammer would set off a live cartridge and blow his brains all over the place. <laughs> so there, you've got a almost a hundred year gap between the concept and the, the coining the term. But the book I read this week, uh, it takes place in between those years when you know uh, the concept and the name in between when the concept and the name were established and it's funny you said before like that you think of it as just the literal you know in the literal sense russian roulette you know mm -hmm. but if you were to actually take it completely literally as far as playing roulette in russia, in russia. <laughs> then you would get something like the 1866 short novel the gambler by mm. Fyodor Dostoevsky. Nice, the gambler, yeah. Russian roulette. And so this definitely came to me at the right time. You know, I've been, we talked about it last last episode. I'm feeling burned down on reading a little bit, but this quarantine's been getting to me. But, you know, reading some Dostoevsky, I'm kind of reminded how books can be as addictive as, you know, letting episode through episode <laughs> run. Oh, absolutely. You know, Running through your TV or whatever. That's the thing and that's always shocking about Dostoevsky is that it's like, oh, I'm reading this thing from a long time ago. And then you're like addicted. Yeah, he rules. Um, yeah. So I, I read this in one sitting. Uh, I mean, it's only 170 pages, but still, you know, it's yeah, it an addictive. Yeah, that's a stretch for one sitting. Addictive 100 experience. is like doable. 170 is a lot. Yeah. And uh, so after reading this, I learned... I wanted to dig into a little bit about the background of how it was made. You know, why would he write this book? Uh, and apparently Dostoevsky was a big gambler. And it comes across in the story yes, like he's the inherent risk in gambling can be, you know, pure adrenaline. Uh, even in the fictional world, you know, it got to me when I was reading these <laughs> passages of, of, you know, big high stakes and, you know, putting your, you know, everything that you own, you know, on the line or whatever. Did you, um, I got a question. Did you see uncut gems? I have not seen uncut gems yet. Do, ah, you got to see it. It was, it was <laughs> great. Uh, it's like a sort of tamer version of that, mm -hmm. but the same general uneasy feeling of watching someone like, uh, you know, Howard, who was Adam Sandler's character, like make way too big of risk and never quit while ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, just kind of that, yeah uneasy uneasy feeling um so yeah watch that movie and read this book 
But going back to Dostoevsky from, I think from 18, 1862 to 1871 was his gambling days. Mm-hmm. And the story... Yeah, it was story, like a huge problem for him. Yeah, yeah. And the story of this story is that it was written to pay off gambling debts. Nice. So it's very meta. <laughs> like the, the contract to publish this story was itself a gamble. He had a strict timeline to deliver a story of a certain length by November 1st of 1866 or this publisher slash debtor slash, I don't know, some kind <laughs> of some crazy guy named F.T. Stilovsky, uh, he would, if he didn't, if Dostoevsky didn't deliver, he would hold the rights to publish Dostoevsky's work f- for nine years without any compensation Ooh. to Theodore. Yeah, so it was a big, it was a big risk, and I think uh, his wife helped him, you know, meet the the deadline and everything. But anyway, so pretty interesting, you know, true to life connection to to this this story. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to summarize the story too much. But you've got the main character Alexei Ivanovich, and you know he works for this family. He's like the tutor for some the, some of the kids of the family, but mm-hmm. he works for the family who are like. By the way, sort Alex- of like, Alexei Ivanovich is like John Smith. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the most common <laughs> Russian name oh, possible. Alexei, son of Ivan. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. So John Smith, he works <laughs> for this family who they're sort of like fake nobles. They kind of they act like they have a lot of money, but they have mm. you know gambling debts and other issues. Right. And they're, you find out they're essentially waiting for the rich aunt, the rich aunt to die in the family in order to get her inheritance as they've kind of heard via telegram that she's ill and they keep sending telegrams to find out, you know, is she alive? Is she, how is she doing? Uh, it's kind of sinister in that sense. But hmm. so Alexei, he works for the patriarch of the family who is known as the general. Okay. And that was very confusing to me when I was reading it at first. I w- didn't know why he was called the general or why they were referring to him that way. He's just right. a former general, I guess. This is something that may also be coming through in translation because there's like a general in the idiot that I did on the podcast. And oh, it's okay. like, and it's like, is this guy like a military like mastermind? <laughs> like, is he wearing a uniform right now? Like, yeah. or is that like some sort of translation that just basically like, yeah, like, the he, you know, sells car insurance. Yeah. Uh, the general. But, <laughs> so Alexei, Alexei's got two things he loves in the world and that's gambling and the general's niece uh, named Polina. Of course. And so he has a sick sort of obsession with both of them. This book does a really good job of describing them as similar paths to despair, you know, like unrequited love and infatuation is, you know, it's taking a big gamble with your life. And apparently both, I mean, both of these things were directly from Dostoevsky's life as, you know, during the time he was a gambler. And then during the time he was obsessed apparently with one of his students named, uh, I'm going to mess this up. (laughs) Apple. Apollinaria Suslova. Okay. So Polina and (laughs) Apollinaria, it's kind of, the fictional character's name is hidden in the real person's name, so he Mm -hmm. didn't disguise it 100%. Um, That was one of his students who was, I guess, 20 years younger than him. So anyway, this... And you say his wife helped him finish this book? (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know the whole story, but 
Uh, so this family, you know, they're waiting to hear from the rich aunt and they call, refer to her as grandmama, um, assuming that she's dead. And then, you know, suddenly she shows up and her character reminded me of Jack Donaghy's mother in 30 Rock. Do you remember? <laughs> yes, I do remember. Her, <laughs> you know, yes. this very, very snappy and kind of cruel old, older woman, but very lively. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just going to read her description from the book. Yes, it was she, rich and imposing, and 75 years of age. Antonita Vasilyevna Tarasevicha, landowner and grand dame of Moscow, who had caused so many telegrams to be sent off and received, who had been dying, yet not dying, who had, in her own person, descended upon us even as snow might fall from the clouds. Though unable to walk, she had arrived, borne aloft in an armchair, her mode of conveyance for the last five years, as brisk, aggressive, self-satisfied, bolt upright, loudly imperious, and generally abusive as ever. Every person whom she met scanned with an inquisitive eye. After first of all interrogating me about him or her at the top of her voice, she was stout of figure, and though she could not leave her chair, one felt, the moment that one first looked at her, that she was also tall of stature. Her back was as straight as a board, and never did she lean back in her seat. Also, her large gray head, with its keen, rugged features, remained always erect as she glanced about and glanced about her as in an imperious, challenging sort of way, with looks and gestures that clearly were unstudied. Though she had reached her 76th year, her face was still fresh, and her teeth had not decayed. Lastly, she was dressed in a black silk gown and white mob cap. So she's a very entertaining character in this book. Yeah, sounds terrifying. <laughs> I know, like not not physically imposing, but like she could just cut you down with mm-hmm. a with a glance. Um, so she, you know, she arrives and she's like, "Oh, you know, I heard you're uh, wondering about how I'm doing. Like, you know, you're not going to get this month, this inheritance or whatever." And she is kind of get she kind of gets drawn into the roulette wheels that are just outside of the train station like oh you know how does this work i've never played before mm-hmm. it seems very easy can you show me how to play and the, you know the general's saying like alexei like you can't you can't do this like you know you got to dis- like um try and dissuade her from from getting into this and but you know she she asks Alexei to explain the game to her, you know, help her make her bets, and by a stroke of luck, she wins big on her first night of playing. And you know, there it is, Beginner's luck. an instant case of gambling addiction. And then the story takes off from there, and you can you can imagine where it may go because if you've read other Dostoevsky novels, he is good at finding rock bottom. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it sets up uh, into a very interesting story. Um, nice. But yeah, a couple things about it, uh, like we were saying before about the translation, it's also a little hard to figure out exactly how much the stakes were in this novel, because it's mm-hmm. all Russian and French currency. Right. And I needed an exchange rate to help me understand. Uh, and also going back two centuries or a century and exactly. a half. Exactly. In, inflation, too. Um I think the largest sum mentioned in this book was 200,000 francs, which in it's modern times, so much the money. Swiss francs is, you know, it's a one-to-one now, roughly, but I don't know what it would have been back then. And then with inflation, I just assumed it was a shit ton. Yeah, that's so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so yeah, really good story. Dostoevsky rules. I need to read some more, you know. Um, Brothers Karamazov is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Might want to revisit that someday. Uh, another thing about this, I have a Penguins classic, just a uh, paperback. And on the cover, it's interesting. It's just a it's just a drawing of this guy with like a, a you know, like the world's strongest man when they like pick up those big ass rocks, like the yep. the Atlas stones or whatever. It's this mm-hmm. guy just holding, it's almost like Atlas shrug type thing. He's holding like a, a big dice, a die, like oh, nice. six-sided <laughs> die over his shoulder, like like it's this big burden. But there's there's not really any dice rolling in this. It's all roulette. Hmm. They just commissioned the painting. Yeah. Something you ever played roulette? I have never played roulette, no. I actually think it's kind of fun. I mean... I've played craps. Craps is... Yeah. Is a harder game to understand, right? There's a lot of rules in that. Might possibly, yeah. I mean, you kind of need someone to guide you. I've only really played it once, but... Craps is okay because your money lasts like a long time i mean long not like a long time it all gets not it's not one and done right yeah Yeah. all gambling is basically oh there goes five dollars there goes ten (laughs) dollars but uh craps it feels like you 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 can like be at a craps table for like the amount of money that it takes to go to like a movie and dinner for the same amount of time yeah so you're paying for experience kind of other than yeah the the risk yeah um Roulette's cool just because it's very, very simple to understand, you know, red, black numbers. Yeah. And you can very (laughs) easily just double, you know, you could double your money if if it's a 50 50 on just red and black. Well, not exactly because you got the double zero and the zero, but yeah, uh, pretty close. Russian roulette is also very simple to understand. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the scenes in this when he's actually describing the the gambling itself or it's exhilarating, you know, that was the part that maybe that was addicting. Yeah, yeah. Because so even the, even you know it's someone it's someone else's money. It's someone else's thing, but it's still like, hey, whoa, what is what is he getting into here? So I guess this book is also revealing that roulette was at least one of Dostoevsky's games. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he describes this other game uh, that he said is pretty simple as well, and he just played it for a second, but it was mostly roulette. Hmm. Interesting. And also, this book I have, it's a collection of three short stories. It's The Gambler, um, Bobak, which is, I guess, a very short one. It's only like 20 pages or something. And then the last one is called A Nasty Story. (laughs) (laughs) A Nasty Story. Nice. I might have to read that one. Cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of those other two. I thought you were going to say, like, The Possessed or something is, like, a famous one. Uh, Uh, It says, yeah. Yeah. But Bobak is a macabre satirical conversation piece in a graveyard. And a nasty story, one of his earliest and best, is a nightmare of good intentions gone bad. Wow. So I might have to read both of those. Nice. Dostoevsky. Yeah. Well, going back to the original conversation, Dostoevsky, I would put one vote into him standing the test of time. Because it's just endless, you know, like from filmmakers like Kurosawa was like a huge Dostoevsky person to, you know, authors of today and hopefully of tomorrow. People just love Dostoevsky for good reason. Yeah. We need Uh, a modern, we need a modern Brothers Karamazov movie though. Yeah. Well. That would be cool. Or like, you know, a big, big budget one. 
big budget one. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I got I got one more thing. One star review. Oh, okay. Um, Carla says, I know this is autobiographic, but honestly, who cares about your gambling addiction, Dostoevsky? <laughs> wow. And he hasn't <laughs> responded yet. Oh yeah, yeah. He's not on Goodreads. That's funny. <laughs> there weren't a lot of weren't a lot of um, one star reviews for this though. Yeah, it's very sure. well, good, very sure. good ratio. Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. All right. Well, you kind of touched a little bit. It's interesting that you touched a little bit on the history of the publishing of that book. Um, with the whole like gambling debts and that kind of thing and, you know, rushing to get something published just so you can, you know, survive. Um, because I, I did what I thought might not be possible last week, but I did read the longest section of Lost Illusions part two, which is called A Great Man from the Provinces in Paris. It's a section, it's the middle section of the longest novel of Lost Illusions, which was originally a trilogy by Balzac. And it came out in 1839, so two years after um, The Two Poets, which is what I talked about last time. Uh, What do you, do you have anything that you sort of remember from my shitty book report last time? Um, I remember... He was about to go off to, was it Paris? <laughs> yeah. 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 So basically the first part is like this guy, Lucien Chardon, is kind of like a guy who lives in what's called the provinces, which is basically like suburbia, like outside of the city of Paris. And he basically like, he's sort of like a selfish guy who's going to take everything that his family and his best friend, David, who's his brother-in-law and he's going to take like as much advantage of them as he can not that he's like an evil guy but he's sort of like a like an ignorant of other people's struggles guy where he's like i'm my mom and sister have always thought i was a genius so it's totally fine that they are just giving me their last savings for my he's sh- entitled sh- yeah he's entitled to go to paris and the way that he went to paris i don't even know if i mentioned this in the original uh thing was that he is with this woman, Madame Barjaton, who is kind of like herself, is a big fish in a small pond. And uh, what happens is Lucian is like her guy on the side. And then there's like some drama that happens where she gets her husband, her actual husband, to get in a duel with some guy. Like you said, dueling. Like, I don't understand. Like, the <laughs> Did rules he slap of, him with a glove? Yeah, the rules of dueling are very mysterious. He didn't slap him with a glove, but it's that kind of situation where it's like, okay, we're going to stand close to, like, not too far away from each other and shoot at each other. And what happens is the husband, like, shoots this guy in the throat. So he doesn't, like, die, but he's, like, permanently disfigured. So then Madame Barjaton, her husband, and I guess Lucian as, like, a hanger-on to being, like, her, you know, boy toy they're like we're piecing out here and we're going to paris like her dreams are coming true at the same time as lucian's so what happens when lucian gets into the city madam like it's really interesting because balzac is good at writing this type of stuff but it's like in the eyes of madame barjaton it's like lucian suddenly is like when she's hanging like she's hanging out with her rich cousin who's like a you know like a duchess basically and it's like okay 
she starts hanging out in her society and then when Lucian is hanging out there it's like oh I've suddenly realized with like this new filter of Parisian society that this guy is like not well dressed like he's not super like of the fashions of the day like here's this like country bumpkin that I was in love with because he's handsome but in the light of Paris you know it's like a different story and the <laughs> same is the opposite side for Lucian like he gets into Paris and there's all these like beautiful young women wearing the fashion of the day like dazzling him with you know pomp and circumstance and all this like crazy stuff and then he's like looks over at madame barcheton and he's like she's kind of like an ugly old lady like she's <laughs> not you know like in it back in our hometown she was like the lady of the land but then when you go to paris it's like she gets knocked down a peg so basically what ends up happening is like she kind of snubs him and then he is like okay like i'm just in a new city like i don't know what to do and he has to live like with no money no anything and he has to find his way into being like a journalist so that's like the setup of the novel where it's like he starts at the he starts at the bottom like as soon as he gets there he gets one tiny taste of high society and then gets ejected out of it immediately because he's sort of like not cool enough yeah. Um, so that's the beginning of what's the section is called a great man from the provinces in Paris. I'll go more into the plot in a little bit, but um, you know, I think all of the the same things with Balzac like apply again. I think that I learn. I started to get a rhythm in the second section here, where it's like his characters, for better or for worse, are very archetypal, which. I can appreciate because even though they're archetypal, he has like lot. He has lots of things. Remember last time when I was asking you, like, have you ever walked home, like taken the long way home, you know, or yeah, like, have yeah. you ever like done this? There's all these universal things that he is very good at touching upon. So even when I say that his characters are archetypal and very representative, it's not necessarily a negative, but it's just like the way that it is. Like Lucian is this poet. He's learning how to be a professional in a big city. Like it's not something that you've like never heard of before um you know he makes friends there's politics there's the nobility there's the left and the right which is actually really interesting just in terms of like today's politics versus back then there was still only like two dominant parties and the novel is actually very political it like comes into play um where lucian's loyalties lie politically as he becomes journalist um so basically, like, yeah, there's all these archetypal things going on, but back, getting back into the plot is, like, so Lucian, like, he's down on his luck. He doesn't know what to do. All he can really do is just, like, study and write and hope that his money doesn't run out in time for, like, him to actually make money on writing. And then he kind of befriends these people. There's, like, a really great... Actually, like, Balzac does this, like, really good job of describing a restaurant that is... Um, part of Parisian like student society and I can relate to this in term via the kind of like diners of New York City but basically like he describes this restaurant where he's like this I mean I would actually be interested to look up if it's still there in Paris in like some form because he's oh, describing a real place it's describing I don't know if it's describing a real place or if it's describing something that you know was represented a real place but he's basically like you know there's this restaurant that's going to be there from the beginning of time to the end of time and the reason is because on their menu he is like there's one thing that it says on the menu that anyone can take advantage of and it says 
bread at discretion, which basically means that at your waiter's <laughs> discretion, you can have as much bread as you want. And he was like, and he is like, that is the jumping off point for like all poor students to be there. Like people have regular tables there where it's like they sit there for like six hours you know, because they can't afford anything else. And it creates this cool kind of environment where it's like, okay, even though Lucian got kicked out of going to the opera and, you know, like in the box or at the theater or whatever, there's this underlayer where he meets what he calls the Brotherhood, which is like real artists. So he meets a friend named De Arthez. This is also like we're getting into that territory where it's like there's so many different names. You kind of just have to pick and choose which ones you're going to remember like permanently. But you'll make the right decision on like the I, most I gotta, important ones. Yeah, I got a question first, though, mm -hmm. uh, just because you got me thinking about free bread now. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's the best uh, best free bread restaurant experience you've had? I mean, can anyone deny Olive Garden? Um, <laughs> no, Olive Garden. Um, as as far as uh, franchises go or whatever, like uh, Texas Roadhouse has. Texas Roadhouse. They have that awesome, Texas toast, right? Awesome free bread. No, they have like, it's it's masquerading as bread. It's basically like a honey bun. <laughs> like, oh, nice. <laughs> See, exactly. Like, you know, you have that connection and that's yeah. something that I think that's something that Balzac is really good at is maybe even not even knowing it, but, you know, getting onto these universal themes is like, yeah, I can relate to that. So, like, at the same time that there were this, he was describing this French, like, cafe slash restaurant, I was thinking about how, like, you know, it, in New York City, it's like, when you're going to school, you go to these diners, and it's like, you can see your classmates at, like, two in the morning, you know, three <laughs> in the morning, you know, like, everyone's, like, doing their own thing. Um, but, yeah, he, like, Lucian meets these people called the Brotherhood, and they are very, like, they are the archetypal sort of, like, you must suffer for your art. Like, you're, we're not here to make money. We're here to, like, torture ourselves to make a lasting statement about, like, whatever we happen to be working on. So one of them is, like, a lawyer. One of them, like, writes plays. One of them is developing, like, the novel of the next century or whatever. And they're all very sort of dreamy people where it's like he finds his way with them and they're very kind and everything but as lucian is lucian and not uh, like exactly a pure-hearted person he gets embroiled that the whole part like the whole like meat of this middle section of it is that he gets embroiled into the world of journalism which his friends are like if you want to write poetry and novels then you can't be a journalist because journalists are basically like whores who sell themselves for money and lucian's like i don't know about all that like you can have integrity as a journalist i mean today in the in the modern day of journalism like some people would say that that's like one of the most noblest professions you know like like really putting your like opinion out there and like sticking to like you know, these journalistic principles. So he's like, I don't know about that. So he goes and he starts to learn more about like the society, like the history of publishing in, you know, in 19th century France. This is sort of like a, you know, if you, it, it, that's something that you sort of learn about as you're reading Lost Illusions. But, you know, Lucian, he starts to learn like, okay, these journalists, like, what do they do? And he, it, there's actually a really funny scene. And again, this goes back to the archetypal thing where it's like, he basically has one day where he's hanging out with one of these journalists in that same like poor people cafe. And then that one day, 
he spends a bunch of his money to get nice clothes and then they go to the theater that night they go to dinner and like basically by the end of this one crazy day lucian becomes like insanely successful (laughs) so it's like one of those things where it's like okay balzac like that was like a little bit like on the nose but it's like you just kind of have to like take it as it comes and it's like not realistic it's like a long book where stuff like that is sort of when things happen they happen very quickly because he has a lot of other things to say about kind of the workings of how everyone's reacting to each other but you know the book is appropriately titled lost illusions because lucian starts to lose his sort of like the idea like that the brotherhood has of like oh you know we're all in this for the toil of artistry and like the soul of art and to make a statement lucian learns very quickly that all of the journalists like he has these like a few like badass friends who are journalists and it's basically like back in the day in you know 19th century paris he was like you're a journalist and all you do is you either criticize someone with your name or you or you um praise someone not with your name or vice versa and he was like and all of the journalists work for like three different papers and it's like if one book comes out you write you write praise on it in this journal and then you write a criticism on it in this journal you make double the money and the author he he benefits from the controversy (laughs) so it's like a win-win situation where they're like and he doesn't understand it he's like wait so like i get this assignment from the paper that i'm now on and you know what am i going to say about this book and they're like that doesn't matter you idiot (laughs) and they're just like you just have to like like depending on what's happening or during the time or if one of the people who you're on the paper with is aligned or not aligned with the author you either trash him or praise him and you know like that's where like the chips fall where you want them to and like these journalists would it's like goes into all this detail about how like these journalists would like hold people ransom. Like if you had dirt on somebody with a title, which is like the title of like Duke or Duchess or, you know, blah, 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 that whole thing. It's like you can blackmail them with like your power of being like part of like the like the circle of like newspapers and stuff, because this is how people receive their information. Right. So it's all yeah. just like. You know, if you have a grudge against this person, slash them down or write fictional stories about them, which are like everyone can tell is like a tabloid of like the truth and stuff like that. So he gets like, you know, his old friends who would be like, there's there's like you're not supposed to live life this way. He gets sucked into the kind of like he can live now for months on like the fact that like. He has all these rich friends who bring him to dinners with dukes and duchesses and stuff like that. And he kind of he gets sucked in. And basically what happens is he also gets. I don't know if you would call it a lied, but he gets into a relationship with this actress named Coralie and a journalism, a journalist at that time can make or break a an actress and an entire playhouse right so these all these journalists what they have is like they have monthly tickets to all of the like they split up the different playhouses and they have monthly tickets and stuff and like they sell their monthly tickets as another part of their income and they also deal in like the illicit trade of books and stuff like that because that's the only way people get information (laughs) so it's like when you get this book to review he's like they get books to review and they're like i'm not reading this piece of shit i'm gonna sell it back to whoever thinks that they want it or like some bookseller or whatever and i'll write the review anyway even though i haven't read a page and lucian's like damn this is intense like it's all about money you know it's 
all about power. Um, so yeah, he get he like falls in love. He like semi falls in love with this actress. Another thing that's really fascinating about the like politics and like the relationships of a book this this long ago is, you know, I was talking about how he traveled to Paris with Madame Bargeton, but Madame Bargeton is also married to like this worthless like Duke guy or whatever. It's the same thing. Like he falls in love with this actress named Coralie, and it's like she's already the mistress of this other rich guy, and then. <laughs> And then it's like, what? And then and then that rich guy even knows about Lucian. Like, Lucian lives with her in, like, the apartment that he furnishes for his mistress. And it's very kind of mysterious. Like, the morals of their relationships are kind of, like, gone with time. Like, they're not like we are now. It's like, when you're reading it, you're like, wait, that guy just found out that Lucian, like, is, you know, sleeping with his mistress. And then, but he, he like, doesn't care. Like, the rich guy yeah. is, like because it's really interesting like they see each other very coldly it's like okay there's this young hot guy who's trying to like pull my mistress away from me and then the rich guy is just like but i'm way richer than him so she's gonna come back to me eventually and by the way he's right so it's like all these like crazy like you know relationships and politics and all this stuff and i also think he has like some really like awesome interesting things to say about how this book is really in at its core about if you're an artist, like a professional artist or a craftsman, you eventually butt up against the world of business and you kind of have to make your piece that one is at odds with the other. Like the soul of your art is at odds with like making money um, in a kind of like a practical way. And I think there's probably a good way and a bad way to go about it. But Lucian usually goes about it the idiotic way. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm going to read a short select, like thing from page 258 of my edition, which is okay. I wrote next to this, the, the same topic that I'm talking about, professional artisan versus business. Yeah, I've so, been curious about the like voice. The voice, the yeah. Voice so, the voice of Lucian. His friend uh, Etienne is the guy who basically makes him famous like in one day. <laughs> um, so he's, <laughs> he's telling him. Uh. Why do you put yourself in the way of such suffering? I tell you that the things that cost us our life, the subjects which te tear our brains through studious nights, the fields of thought we toil among, the work we build and cement with our blood are to publishers merely a paying or a non-paying venture. They sell or they don't sell your work. That's the whole problem to them. A book to them is only a risk of capital. The finer the book, the less chance it has of selling. All superior minds are above the masses. Their success depends, therefore, on the necessary time it takes for their work to be appreciated. No publisher is willing to wait for that. The book of today must be sold tomorrow. Publishers will refuse books of real substance, which advance slowly to high appreciation. And then Lucian says, my friend from the Brotherhood, De Arthez, was right. And then Lustau, his, his friend Etienne, says, you know, De Arthez, there's nothing more dangerous than solitary minds that expect, as that poor fellow does, to bring the world to their feet. By fanaticizing their young imaginations with a belief that merely flatters their inward sense of power, such foolish awaiters of posthumous glory, posthumous glory, are prevented from bestirring themselves at an age when movement is possible and profitable. I'm for Muhammad's system. After ordering the mountain to come to him, he cried out, if you don't come to me, I will go to you. So 
it's all this like metaphor. The whole book goes on like that in that rich, like beautiful language. But it's basically, you know, his friend is being like your brotherhood back there where they all they want to do is suffer for their art are morons. You got to be rich while you're young (laughs) (laughs) and they're like wasting their lives. Obviously, um, you know, Balzac probably has a special place in his heart for the people that are hit were his brotherhood. Um, and like, you know, the true artists of his day and everything goes horribly for Lucian, as you can expect. Like he yeah. <laughs> allies himself, he allies himself with one paper. Then towards the end of the book, it's like he he's also in pursuit of this thing. That's also kind of a foreign concept to us. But like he's in pursuit of the idea that you at, at Paris in this time, you can appeal to the king that you want to. You know how there's like those people named like Du Châtelet and Du Repompre and stuff like that. Yeah. So the, I learned through this book that that's actually like a thing where you would appeal to the king that you wanted to have like a tight, like be known through a title like Duch, Duch, Duchess is like Duke and Dutch and whatever. And um, Lucian's going through a process where he wants to appeal to the king to use his mother's name because his mother was actually like high up in society. Whereas, better, yeah, as his father, yeah, his father Chardon is just like a common name. So he's going through this process where he's using his political wiles as a famous journalist or the newest famous journalist to try to be able to freely associate himself at, in that like fancy name like Lucien yeah. du Ribumpre or whatever <laughs> and uh, it doesn't work out too well he allies himself with one left-leaning liberal paper and then as soon as the opportunity comes to try to advance his name he switches over to the right wing and uh, there's a really good quote from page 304 which is uh, which was foreshadowing that where one of his friends says I see you entering this literary and journalistic life with illusions. You believe you are making friends. We are all friends or enemies according to circumstances. We strike ourselves with the weapons we ought to use only to strike others. You will find out before long that you will gain nothing by fine sentiments. If you are kindly, make yourself ill-natured. By Be surly on principle. If no one else has told you this first law, I give it to you now. It is a gift that is worth having. If you wish to be loved, never leave your mistress without having made her weep. If you wish to make your fortune in literature, wound everyone, even your friends. Make the self-love suffer and all the world will court you. (laughs) So it's like this brutal world where he's like, I don't know what's happening. He tries to make things work out for himself and it does not work out. Obviously, I was addicted to this book. I read 300 pages of a book from the 1830s um, within one week. So I'm I'm anxious to I will read the last section, which is just as short as the first section. The last one, I think he's returning to his home in Paris uh, outside of Paris. And it says an inventor's tribulations, um, which, again, came out two years after this book. Um, yeah, it's all cups of coffee after that. I don't know. I don't know how many cups of coffee, but I do want to say. Uh, in terms of calculating things, I don't have much much more time before my one-star review, but in terms of calculating things, I'm so glad I said in the podcast before this that I, I really was, you know how I was appreciating the Barnes & Noble Classics Edition because it was like really well annotated and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. So let me break down for you. I found a very disturbing lack of 
page notes in this second book. It's almost like they tried hard on the first one. They didn't try on the second one. So the oh. first <laughs> the first book has 32 notes over 130 pages, which I worked out is an average of about one note per every four pages. And obviously in a book like this, like there's a lot of explaining to a modern reader. Like I want to know things. I want to know like what Balzac, like what kind of like context he was putting in. So one note for every four pages in the first book. And the second book has 14 notes over 300 pages, an average of one note per every 20 pages, 22 pages. Wow. So it's like <laughs> I went from one in four to one in 22, and I was enjoying those notes so much. And I, I was getting in things in the second book where I was like, that should be a note. I have no idea what that fucking means. <laughs> and I need to go like research it because obviously it's like interesting that like he was like commenting on this, all these like left right politics and stuff like that um so yeah failure of on the note of the second part of barnes and noble classics of lost illusions okay. we'll see how well they do on the third part but where does it stand as far as comparing it to the first book is it, it does it follow the, the this second does book, it, wait does it follow the uh, empire strikes back it does it does Mode? this is a true okay. trilogy where it's like the first one is a little bit more positive the second one is definitely the dark one i think i can feel that this second book is like the book that he wanted to write. I would not be surprised if the third one is kind of just like tacking on to make some money, you know, Dostoevsky style, yeah. paying back his debts. <laughs> um, because this this was really good. This middle section was very like I was addicted and it was like I think that this was the book that he was wanting to write. Um, but was gearing up and gearing down, you know, for the publishing industry and, and among other things for the first and the third part. But we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I loved David, his friend in the first part, and he wasn't in the second part at all. So he's probably going to make a return when he goes back to his hometown, um, which will bookend it nicely. And um, yeah, Lost Illusions, a great man from the provinces in Paris. Obviously I couldn't find a one star review that was just this middle book. <laughs> so uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I had to be happy with my one star review from last time, um, which was a guy named Martin. I won't repeat it. Another thing that I'll say before I, since I, in absence of my one star review is that I notice, and I think it works and I think it's an interesting writing style, but I think I've noticed that Balzac likes to flatter his readers Oh. <laughs> like a lot of the times because he is That's so a good, good tactic. a lot of the times when he because he's so good at universal themes of like humanity and stuff like that like i i put out something that's on my page 368 of my thing you know here's a quote where he says reflection in the midst of complications of life is the unmistakable sign of a strong will which poets or feeble natures or purely spiritual minds cannot counterfeit so there he's saying basically like reflections on complications you know you gotta you gotta go through that sometimes and i found throughout other parts in the book where i i honestly did feel like he was flattering me where he was like you know that universal feeling that you have you know about life or love or reflections and stuff and he was like only smart people do that <laughs> only the intelligent you know they are above the rest and you're like yeah that's me because I felt those things. <laughs> so I think that yeah, I caught on to his bullshit a little bit, but I think probably he's also one of those people that if you hung out with him, he would be like, well, all this stuff is happening to you because you're smart, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a good guy, <laughs> which you just, you just want to believe. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, a, a great man from the provinces in Paris. We'll see. I think, you know, this is also like, this three book thing is also like... Uh, 
It's interesting. You know how like when you watch a show on Netflix nowadays and you can't imagine how people would watch it once a week? You know, like if you yeah, burn yeah. through a few episodes of Fraser, Split it's up. like it would be so weird if you only saw it every Wednesday night or whatever. I feel the same way about Lost Illusions where it's like these would be weird books if they were two years apart. Like if oh, I was yeah. <laughs> waiting two years for Lucian to go get into Paris after Madame de Bargeton's husband got in a duel, that would be very sort of like anticlimactic. So I'm glad <laughs> it's I'm glad it's all out for my enjoyment now. Nice. Um, that sounds but, good. I mean, in, yeah. in the absence of your one star review, we have you. We have a one star review from you. That's just it needs more notes. Yeah, it needs more notes. Barnes and Noble yeah. Classics Edition one star. Balzac five stars yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah this has been shitty book reports thanks for listening everybody you can find us once a week we're not committing to a day anymore once a week yeah. on Spotify SoundCloud Instagram Twitter Stitcher pretty much everywhere where podcasts are we also are at SBR the podcast and you can email us at SBR the podcast at gmail.com give us comments suggestions corrections or whatever you're feeling yeah, yeah. we release the podcast like Russian roulette yeah, it's, uh, you have a one out of one, <laughs> one out, out of seven. seven chance. Peace. See ya.